Welcome to Clear Vision. Here we have exclusive, up close, and personal conversations with legendary musicians. Our program is devoted to examining what makes people great. Needless to say, everyone has a unique story, a clear vision, and we're here to bring it to you. Welcome to our very first podcast. I'm Doug Bowder, and I've worked in the music industry most of my life as an educator, publisher, author, musician, and entrepreneur. I've had the honor of talking with some of the legendary names in the music business, and what I found is that indeed everyone does have a unique story, a clear vision on their journey to success. Who better to tell you about these stories than the musicians themselves? their aspirations and dreams, and the decisions they've made that shape their lives and their music. On the first podcast, we talk with Michael McDonald. He's like reading the who's who of musical talent. Being the member of the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan, he's also collaborated with Toto, Van Halen, Patti LaBelle, Lee Rittenauer, The Winans, and Aretha Franklin. Really, the list goes on and on. So let's get started. Michael, would you say your first big break was playing with Steely Dan? Uh, hard to say, because really, you know, it's almost like my first big break might have well have been joining Jerry Jane the Sheraton, you know. Uh, when, I, when that happened to me, uh, I was 14, like I say, and it was a, one of the more popular bands in the St. Louis area. And not that any of that mattered so much, but uh, the manager of the band was a, a man named Joe Bacarney. And he was very serious about the level of professionalism in the band and uh, and in a way it, it, we were almost kind of funny you know uh, we we wore uh, matching clothes when we were setting up our equipment we had bowling shirts one time we played a, the pop festival in New York City at Forest Hills and we won a battle of the bands from St. Louis and we went out and played this play. and we we looked like a group of young uh, either the young Republicans or uh, some young accounting class or something, but uh, or some boys' school. I don't know what we looked like, but we were dressed alike in the airport. We were dressed alike on the plane, and uh, I remember people on the plane. You know, we ha- we didn't get all our seats together, and we none of us, some of us, had never flown in our lives before, and we were all in these like you know matching blazers and pants and. Uh, People were kind of looking back in the airplane, trying to figure out why all these guys were dressed alike. And we we had a ball, but it was such a it was like joining the army. This guy he ran a tight ship, and but what he really did teach us was professionalism, how to to uh, be professional as a band. Not that uh, so much of it we 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 all went away with, and certainly we entered the age of the '60s where it was, you know. But but he instilled in in me, I know, and uh, a real responsibility to ourselves as musicians, putting in uh, what we could each day, you know, to, to ensure the fact that we could actually make a living at this. Because, you know, if we made that decision early on, it was kind of his philosophy that if you're going to do the responsibility to yourself, you have in that, in that sense. And we, we went on that way through the whole era of, you know, we played a club in St. Louis where they used to mop up the floors. They'd make everybody leave because the walls would sweat so bad, be like an inch of water on the floor. And I mean, some some great people play there. We, we played there with Chuck Berry. We used to back up Chuck Berry there and the Allman Brothers when they were the Hourglass used to play there. Icatina played there and a lot of people. It was a, kind of an infamous little night spot in St. Louis. During the age when all the bands were 
you know, trying to do the who and then, you know, wrecking their equipment, dressed, looking as radical as they possibly could. We were still up there in our houndstooth pants and, you know, mohair blazers in the middle of summer. And it was, it was funny. It was, it was kind of like boot camp. It sounds like you're a little reminiscent. Do you miss those times? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't, I, I really enjoy my life now, but uh, I think sometimes I, I pinch myself today and ask myself the question, am I still enjoying it the way I loved it then? Because I, I didn't think about anything else then. Nothing else has ever entered my mind. Uh, I was either playing music with some band or hanging around waiting for it. Uh, kind of all things went by the wayside, you know, where I never was uh, the person that did much outside of what I did, you know, for a living. Huh. So when did you start playing? Uh, well, the first group I was in was a group called Mike and the Majestics. We were pretty young. We were uh, just right out of the basement. Uh, we knew just about enough songs to play for an hour. and uh, So I, I don't know whether that was my first professional gig or not. We made $9 one night you know, playing at somebody's party. But uh, $9 is technically getting paid, so that's a pro gig. Um, let's talk about you joining the Doobie Brothers. I read somewhere that Jeff Baxter introduced you to the group. Yeah, uh, Jeff was really uh, responsible for my being with the movies later. He called me. Uh, like I say, uh, one of those calls where, uh, you know, Tommy uh, Johnson had taken ill and was really unable to finish this tour. Uh, would I sit in with the band for the rest of the tour? And they were already in, they were in New Orleans. You know, this was the second date of a tour, so. I flew to New Orleans the next day, got out and met those guys in New Orleans and rehearsed up uh, the whole show two days. And um, I remember thinking how strange it was to be playing Long Train Running and listen to the music with the, the real Doobie Brothers because I had played those songs in every nightclub in the San Gabriel Valley for three, four years, you know. And uh, so. Um, I remember thinking, God, I must, I should be playing this with a different attitude than, you know, two in the morning at some, you know, nightclub in Bellflower, California. Uh, and it just was funny because it was a great band. They sounded great live, and, uh, and I didn't really know what to expect next. I just kind of figured that after the tour, I would have uh, made enough money to put in the bank and, you know, kind of think of what I was going to do next. And. Uh, one thing led to another, and we wound up in the studio. And Tommy still hadn't resumed, you know, his activities with the band, and uh, so everything was kind of up for grabs. Uh, the record company was very nervous about Tommy not being, you know, in the studio with the band, and uh, and and, we, and everybody was, you know, uh, they had asked me to stay on and play some piano, and uh, well, you know, trying to make a very long story short. Uh, I had written one song uh, that Tyran Porter made a demo of with me, uh, 
helped me make a demo of it. He played it for Ted Templeman, and Ted Templeman said, well, this would be a good direction for the band. Which was very surprising to me, because it was a, a tune called uh, The Losing End, which I would have never dreamed of playing for the Doobie Brothers, but he thought it was a kind of interesting sounding thing. And, uh, so then we just started writing like crazy for the album. Now we're going backwards here. In 1974, you joined the band Steely Dan. You became a member of Steely Dan's touring band. You sang lead and background vocals. You also worked with them in the studio, and you provided background vocals, vocals for Katie Lied, that 75 album, and the 77 album Asia and you kept doing backup vocals with Steely Dan through 1980's release of Gaucho. How in the heck did you start with them? Uh, I auditioned for the band uh, at Modern Music, which was an old equipment rental studio, or rehearsal studio in, in downtown Hollywood. Um, the way it came about, uh, I had met Jeff Beccaro, playing clubs and we played some casuals together uh, and one particular night when we actually met on a more personal level um, we played a Christmas party for uh, the cast of Emergency, the TV show Emergency and uh, uh, so this was their Christmas party we had never met each other, anybody in the band uh, me and the saxophone player knew each other and uh, he knew the rest of the guys, and I didn't know anybody. So needless to say, we didn't have any music rehearsed up. It was a gig that kind of fell in our lap. Um, and we just got together and jammed, really, the whole night. We just thought of songs that we might all know, and we played them. And then we played them over and over again. And uh, But by the first hour, they were so drunk that they had no idea, you know, that we were repeating ourselves. And during the break, those guys were talking about an album they were working on, which was the Pretzel Logic album, Steely Dan, and how good the music was and how what a good time they were having doing the project. And I never thought much about it, except that it was one of my favorite groups. It was their third album, and I loved the first two albums. And I kind of envied those guys working on it. And about a year later, literally, uh, Jeff McCarl called me because he had remembered working the gig with me, and they were looking for someone to play keyboards and sing. And... Um, <clears throat> He just out of the blue called me, and I went down through my Wurlitzer and my Pinto, and went down to Modern Music and um, auditioned and got the job, uh, and toured with them for about a year. We, we toured Europe and uh, the U.S., and then that was it. The band broke up, and it was kind of over as soon as it began. Uh, and I, I went on to do some background singing on, on the next few records with them, but uh, it was a pretty short-lived thing. Which is how, uh, in meeting Jeff Baxter, how I joined the Doobie Brothers later. Because I've interviewed Diane Warren several times, and who herself is an amazing hit songwriter, uh, we talked about you two writing together. Um, I know you collaborated on some successful tunes. How did that go? She was great. I mean, she was just very, you know, very business, you know, all business, you know. And, uh, we got together and we wrote a song in one day, which for me is unusual. I usually, you know, I'll stretch it out for months, maybe a year, <laughs> if, if I'm let do that. But, uh, you know, so it's real unusual for me to get together with somebody and actually write a song in, in one day. And uh, we did, lyrics and everything. And, uh, and she was great because she seemed to really have a great sense of, uh, you know, uh, 
song structure, pop song structure, and, and what you know what a song really needed to do to you know, uh, to be a single. I'm not terribly sure I should mention this, but when I talked to Diane, she said she was really nervous meeting you, really nervous getting to write with you. She was excited but very nervous. I think I was a little nervous to write with her because. You know, I mean, I work at a snail's pace when it comes to writing songs. My wife, you know, she goes from loving me to hating me when I'm writing songs. You know, it's, uh, you know, I tend to walk around the house in the same clothes for months. You know, I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's not a, uh, my, you know, I, I call it a bloodbath, uh, you know, where I torture my family and everybody within a square mile. And it never gets any easier. But, so I, I, I take a long time, you know, because, uh, Writing a song, I'll spend a week on, on a bridge of a song, you know, maybe longer. And, uh, so I was a little nervous about writing with her for that reason, because I thought, you know, she writes so many songs, and she's so professional. But um, we got along great, and, and oddly enough, uh, the songs seemed to go really, really well. And, uh, for me, one of the uh, best, you know, one of the best songs I, I've had anything to do with. Really. I, I kind of look forward to writing with her again. What's coming up? Let me see what's on the schedule. It looks like a salute to film scoring with Danny Elfman and the late Henry Mancini, along with many, many others. Well, that's a wrap for today. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive interview with Michael McDonald on Clear Vision. If so, please subscribe so you can be notified of upcoming content. Tell a friend and give us a five-star review. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.